All right, hey everybody, welcome to your favorite 30-ish minutes of the day. This is the Precisely Simple Podcast, your source for the latest news, interviews, and stories from the manufacturing world. Here, we're going to dive headfirst into the world of manufacturing and the people who make it thrive. I'm Brandon. And I'm Kyle. Welcome. (laughs) Can I just tell you something? Kyle came to make magic tonight okay <laughs> this this episode this, is this is my world tonight sir yeah this is it's my world this is the initial plan is that this is going to be a two-parter so we're probably going to knock both of them out tonight and spread them out over a couple weeks delivery which means you will have two solid episodes of true like kyle form tonight it's good stuff all right, let Welcome. me ask. <laughs> All right, let's get right into it. All right, green light, red light, man. How was this week at the shop? Green light. Oh, kicking butt, firing yep. on all cylinders. Doing good, yeah. Production welders running, uh, building programs for it every other day. Now we're getting stuff rolling. Um, it's really starting to, and we're still not even remotely scratching the surface of that one machine. So having two more on the way, it's just, it's, oh, it's insane. That, uh, that turnkey one you had, the yeah. laser one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's killing it, man. It is, it is doing more than I had even projected. And again, I think we just started welding partially on the second shift just right. to see, just to see what it'll do. Right. And it's just, man, it's been awesome. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. 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 Good week though, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, what about you? Uh, you know, it's uh, orange light. <laughs> <laughs> we're not completely stopped, but we're in about first gear. God, we are. Um, we're still in digital learning, but we have started yeah. this year. We started the hybrid reintegration. So if uh, if okay. family if families decided they wanted their students to go to school, they came in. Uh, and they started with the early grades, and then they're working their way up uh, to the higher grades as they go, which a lot of, I think, school systems are kind of doing it that way. I was going to say, is that a state thing? No, no, every... That, no, every, limited to the county? Or? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Every wow. district is okay. deciding on their own. Um, I think one of the other local uh, Metro Atlanta ones, like they, they sent them back. Boom. Just go. Go back. Didn't yeah. even joke around. Sent them right back immediately. Um, but... Uh, the nice thing is I am hearing from the students that even though we're in, in a digital format, they're enjoying the stuff. They're enjoying the work. They enjoy the class. So, Yeah, but your your kids, uh, uh, they're a little, little older. It's, 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 easier, yeah. it's easier to be engaged versus like my daughter's age, which is much younger. Right. Um, it's, you know, she's doing okay, but the, the whole social interaction thing is, is – you know, it's it's gonna start getting to her, and then give it another month or so, and it's mm-hmm. it's gonna be, it's gonna be getting difficult. Where we're gonna have blow ups and meltdowns, and just, just you know, kids need kid interaction. This is all there is to it. We had the same issue when we got, uh, you know, we got three months into isolating, and we had the exact same problem. She yeah. was lacking social interaction, and it was, yeah. it, 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 you could tell in her behavior and the way she was acting, it was tough. Yeah, I mean, kids kids that age need that. So, oh so my the, god, the, adults the, our age need it too. Well, I know. Yeah, I mean, that's so. As the as you get lower in age, the the the, I guess, the amount of that that is needed is I think exponentially higher. I agree. So I, I think it hits the kids worse. But hopefully, uh, you know, stuff will start 
leveling out, plateauing, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and curve even, curve flattening even. Yes. You'd say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Flattening of said curve. Yeah, there you and go. And we can uh, we can get stuff rolling again because definitely the manufacturing sector's seeing it. Um, so we'll did I did I tell you how lonely I got like. Uh, in, you know, one of the weeks we came back after we were done pre-planning uh, and we started actually just kind of working, um, the way my lab is set up, I'm on a bottom floor. I have my own access door. Oh, you told me like it was eerily quiet. Yeah. Because like n- you didn't hear anything in the halls, no. like nothing. Yeah. And yeah, you would you would go that. in, you go in, you know, masks and, and isolation. You go into your lab, you close your door behind you, you stay there. I walk out to go to the bathroom and come back, spend the entire day there and leave and that's it and uh, <laughs> a day after day <laughs> a day after day in the first uh week that we were in there i hit thursday and i was like what is going on i couldn't tell what was going on with me and i finally it clicked finally i was like i am i'm depressed actually this is this is really depressing this is hard yeah. um and i'm somebody who's like hey if we don't talk all day that's perfectly cool <laughs> yeah and uh it was yeah it was tough but yeah. It's crazy on you for sure. It's getting there. We're getting better again. Yeah, we're we're working through it. Everyone's you know doing their thing and hopefully uh, heading in the right direction. Okay, Kyle, tell me about five G because we're going into the manufacturing minute, and you have given me notes about five G and manufacturing, and I am just intrigued. This tell me is more. more of I, I I've seen this is probably the third or fourth article I've seen it, and AT and T is really the one that's kind of pushing on the manufacturing side. I know T Mobile is actually doing a lot with five G, especially here in Georgia. Oh my um, God! Yeah, we got to talk about that. Yeah, we're, we're kind of where we are. We're kind of in a at least where our building is kind of a technology hub for part of Atlanta, and so Sprint, T Mobile, uh, AT and T, and I want to say Verizon all have like technology offices in the same city that we're in. So you see a lot of that stuff. Uh, my dad does a, a decent amount of work on the uh, telecommunication side. And so, um, but where we're the, the reason I kind of brought this up is this is the third or fourth article I've seen, uh, and this this was an industry week. Nothing crazy far away, but it, I just now that I'm seeing it more and more, I really just kind of want to bring it up and kind of see if other people are starting to see this where. Uh, instead of running, so say if you have a big, large manufacturing facility, uh, whether you're running robots or whether you're running uh, like an MRP system or a WIP, uh, work in progress uh, management system for different stations and manufacturing and how to monitor everything. Um, you know, a lot of companies run Wi-Fi, so you got to run repeaters everywhere. You got to run hard lines out to the floor and stuff like that. So what we're seeing, and again, this is uh, this is something I'm seeing more and more articles on more and more companies implementing is actually doing 5G inside their buildings. Oh, okay. So what they're doing is essentially building mini 5G hotspots inside of a manufacturing facility. Um, I know uh, Amazon is definitely doing it because, you know, Amazon runs drones inside their own buildings. I know they do the floor ones that like they do pick the floor up. floor ones. Yeah. Yeah. But they're also looking at doing aerial stuff as well. So what's cool is the, because 5G is, if you look at it technically, it's a hundred times faster than 4G. So when you have uh, automated robots, if you have the floor drones, if you have even in uh, upper drones or uh, uh, I guess airborne drones that if you lose signal, who knows where that thing's going? 
and a lot a lot of the a lot of those things don't like they're either shut down or they'll just keep going down the same path and not turn stuff like that so it's really cool to see um the 5g and actually running wireless uh as a cell versus or as a cell signal versus like wireless internet kind of thing if I got that you. makes sense just i got you yeah yeah, yeah. The, the connectivity is so much faster um than wireless internet um trying to think I'm trying i want to say I, I think it's dji i'm not sure like their units the way they've got the technology built into them now is insane even if it gets to the point where it's out of range of the controllers or yeah. if the battery gets to a certain amount it runs back to it memorizes yeah. the waypoints of where it traveled turns itself back around comes back to where it started Yep, to get itself out of trouble, which is just you know fascinating. There's so many Amazon hubs going on around Atlanta too. I wouldn't be yeah, surprised if they start testing some yep. of that drone delivery stuff in the area. Listen, that 5G stuff is is neat because you know this whole T-Mobile thing. You know they bought the 600 megahertz spectrum yep. that used to be television, and you know if everybody knows anybody knows anything about 5G, it, you know just let me share and sum up with you. Most of you are industry people, but still, um, you know. 5G cellular service is at this point a joke uh, because you have to be so line of sight to a 5G cell that the, you can you can literally be near one on a pole and then walk around the corner of the building beside it and it's yeah yep. it's gone you've dropped down to LTE. Yep. Um, so their solution is just to drop hundreds of these microcells all over the place to create a blanket mesh network. So as it stands right now, 5G is not really going to work. So T-Mobile buys the 600 megahertz spectrum, the TV, the old television spectrum that we know can travel hundreds of miles through walls and houses and t you know and everywhere and that's, what, that's what they're building theirs and on. that's what they're building theirs on and i'm like genius if they can so make that fun. work yeah. oh my goodness sakes you're talking blanket coverage all yeah. over yeah what yeah. we're even the random mesh spots right I mean, at worst case you're going to drop you know to half bars or you know half load uh, but you're still going to be in, in the 5G network kind of thing. Oh, it's yeah, mind-boggling. It's going to be well that, and there's an infrastructure already built for that for that frequency range too. There's towers all over the place already built for that mm -hmm. frequency range. So your manufacturing minute for this week was, hey everybody, I think this is where we're going. I think you need to keep uh, an eye I on it. I think for in for internal building stuff, um, especially in large open manufacturing spaces, 5G is it's going to work really, really well because it is line of sight. So, you know, you can have obscenely fast speeds um, in open. And again, like Brandon said, if you start moving around walls and you have a bunch of concrete and stuff like that, Boom, yeah, it doesn't work as good. But if you've got a big, huge open manufacturing floor, like say an assembly line or, you know, big warehousing and stuff like that, man, 5G is. Oh, that's like, true. Like, yeah, if you want to do real time oh, yeah. data management, real time warehouse management, man, that's. That's going to be so much cheaper and more stable uh, than running uh, wireless nodes everywhere, like wireless internet nodes. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. So just something cool that I've seen pop up several times, and it's it's just something to mention, and hopefully, hopefully we start seeing it. Um, you know, I haven't seen it personally, uh, but I know there's a lot of companies that are testing it, and I don't know, maybe it's something we can uh, get into one day. Oh my God, that would be awesome. 
Super cool. Okay, so let's move into this. Uh, I'm excited about this. Uh, I know that Kyle's wanted to talk about it for a while. The other exciting part is that I get to be part of the audience because I know very little about this topic. <laughs> um, I just know that it's cool. So we're going to talk about the history of welding. So we're going to bring a little bit of history class in here and a little bit yeah. of uh, modern insight. So uh, Professor Kyle, <laughs> please. Welcome, class. Welcome. <laughs> so uh, again, I, I had previously kind of proposed this as a two-part series on, you know, really just the history and kind of where uh, where welding came from, uh, all the different variants of it, kind of how it's, uh, I guess, evolved over the years. Um, and then the next episode, we'll kind of go a little bit deeper into some stuff uh, on the job side and the fabrication side and where where you where well where welding is heading kind of thing so uh again this will be a two-part series um and it's just it's something i i'm very passionate about i've been welding for a very very long time i do it every single day in in our job uh and what we do on the manufacturing end so wait you have something to do with welding yes no yeah no yeah sometimes learn something new every day yeah, I, I light plastic straws on fire with a lighter. <laughs> there no, it no, is. that's not welding. Sorry. Wait a minute. Uh, so um, I, I really just I, I kind of want to just start from the bottom and and say and just kind of give give someone an introduction that knows nothing about welding. I know Brandon knows a little bit, probably enough to get himself in trouble, but uh, but really to start, welding is a fabrication process that joins materials. Lies. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> the most basic definition you get. Now, to be a little more specific, that usually deals with metals or plastics. Um, and, and one thing a lot of people confuse it is brazing or soldering. Brazing or soldering are, are actually not a welding process because your base materials actually do not change state. Now, what that means is uh, changing state is going from a solid to a liquid or liquid to a gas, something like that. So welding requires that your base materials actually change phase, change phase state. So go from a solid to a liquid. That's usually the most common one to minimize heat is go from solid to liquid. They join, you got a nice little blender down the middle. And bam, you have two materials that are joined together at the at the molecular level. Um, you have a couple different ways you can do it. Um, you can do what's called autogenous welding, which means no filler material, no extra materials added. Um, I'll get into a later time, but that's what we do on the laser side. And then you also have adding filler metal. So you you actually take a I guess take a common material that is common to both your base materials or an alloyed material and you add it to the weld pool to create a stronger joint or to um, uh, increase uh, surface area. So there's a couple different ways you can do it. Most of the time it's, it's done based on gravity or uh, pressure. Pressure can also be do it. Um, but there's... That, that those are the two main ways that you join two pieces of material. Now, moving on of how you join them and what it takes to is it requires an energy source in some way, shape or form. Everything is done thermally on the welding side. 
Um, you have several different energy sources you can do, including gas, flame, you can do chemical, electric arc, uh, laser beams, uh, electron beam, which is really cool, friction, and even ultrasound, which is actually uses sound waves to, uh, to heat up materials and actually bond them together. That's insane. It's pretty cool. So that's, that's kind of the, the base definition and kind of broad, very, very broad scope of, of, of what welding or metal joining technology. I, I've actually seen some college courses called metal joining technology. Uh, dynamic fusion, if you want to get oh, super Oh, wow. Fancy. That's, oh, yeah, there you go. There you go. There, there's a company name right there. Oh, dynamic, man, that is eating your fusion. Big Mac with a fork right there. Yeah, so... Um, so kind of the next, next step I want to go down to is, is the history. Like where, where did welding, where did welding come from? Uh, funny enough, when I was researching this, I knew it went back pretty far. I didn't know how back, how far back it actually went. So it actually goes back several millennia. Um, really the first examples we were seeing were back in ancient Greek. So we were talking fourth, fifth century BC where they were actually talking about iron welding. Um, those were good times back then. Those were good times. Yeah. Um, again, your bronze, iron ages, Europe, Middle East, like that. But the Greeks were really what who were some of the first that were writing about it and actually documenting uh, the, the joining of irons and the joining of, of metals. Um, again, most of, that, most of the metals back then were all iron-based. So that's really kind of where they... Uh, really where they focus their, their energy on, their writing on. Um, Middle Ages, uh, kind of fast forward a little bit. Middle Ages, you started really seeing forge welding. Um, again, blacksmiths still do this to this day. Um, if you've ever watched History Channel and you see forge and fire, when they are heating up material and then hitting it with Big Blue, the big, huge power hammer, <laughs> what they're doing is they're getting the molten, they're getting uh, the material to almost a liquid state. And it's called a plastic state. And they're using force to actually push the molecules together and therefore combining them without actually getting them to a liquid state. So forge welding is one, probably, probably one of the oldest forms of welding, per se. Um, and that's really, again, what you see in blacksmiths, what you see in knife making, weapon making, uh, all the swords. You go back to the samurais in Japan, China, stuff like that. Those were all forge welding techniques. Um, it really wasn't um, until the end of the 19th century of where you actually started seeing... Uh, I guess other processes come in. Really the first one was uh, shirt pulse where you actually used electricity. So again, we're talking 1800, 1801 where electricity is kind of starting to, you know, peek its head out and just saying hi, you know, other use. Now. Hello. Hey, uh, peek its head out and seeing other uses for it. So 1800 is shirt pulse electrical arc started. Uh, 1802, you had continuous electric arc. So again, electricity was still very, very uh, new and people were not really understanding what all you could do with it. So it was kind of just a, a hodgepodge and they were just throwing whatever they could do at it. Um, you know, as again, you run through the 1800s, it slowly starts developing uh, more towards the end of the 1800s, 1885, 1886, you started seeing resistance welding. 
um, which you still use to this day. Uh, some really cool, I did not know, I didn't know thermite welding is this old. Thermite welding was invented in 1893. What? Yeah. So thermite welding is essentially very, very, very hot. And, and actually, what they really used thermite welding for was, do you know? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, what? The Porsche 911. No, wait. <laughs> Because, you know, Porsche was back there. Uh, they used thermite for um, welding train tracks together. What? Okay. So there's plenty of videos on YouTube. Uh, thermite burns very, very hot. It's like 30-something, 100 degrees, 3,000 degrees F. Okay. Uh, really so hot. they used it to, and they made these sand cast molds around joints. And there's videos on YouTube, and they still do, they still build railroad tracks today. Using thermite welding, um, and essentially just superheats this like really cross-sectional area, and it will weld anything. Super super cool process. What? Um, all right. Yeah. So when you get some of that in the shop, yeah. <laughs> you know it's not a fire hazard at all. <laughs> no, it should be fine. You know, th- thermite will burn through metal, concrete, whatever, whatever, whatever you want. It'll go through it. I, I, I feel like you're saying things that are bad, but I'm still not hearing an issue. Yeah, yeah. So, again, that that kind of gets us through the late eighteen hundreds, pushing to nineteen hundred, uh, and and funny enough, uh, the Russians were really at a lot of the forefront on on at least electric arc welding. Uh, again, the continuous electric arc in eighteen o two was a Russian scientist. Then you bump forward to nineteen o five. Another Russian scientist was one of the first that did was one of the first to do a three-phase electric arc welding. Oh, cool. Yeah, so instead of just straight DC or single-phase DC, um, they started doing three-phase. Uh, and then 1905 uh, was another um, uh, another Russian scientist also doing three-phase, but at the same time, um, oh, I got a little ahead of myself, sorry. Um, oxyacetylene <laughs> was... While it was developed back in the 1830s, um, it wasn't used for, I didn't have a practical use for welding until about 1900, 1905, something like that. And that was mainly because the torch limitations. Nobody could focus uh, the acetylene, I guess, flame to make it usable enough. So really about 1900 is where you really started seeing kind of the the growth of, of welding again, a lot of it pushed. Yeah. A lot of it pushed by the that's, industrial revolution. That's fascinating because even today people have a hard time with an acetylene nozzle yeah, and yeah. knowing which way to turn it <laughs> off correctly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so really at about 1900, 1901, 1902 oxyacetylene welding really kind of took off because it was super portable. It was very easy, you know, 1900s, you know, getting electricity in a standard shop, was not common. Right. So a lot of your welding really started out um, oxyfuel, to be honest. Okay. Um, you know, it wasn't really to the 20th, you know, early 20th century where, where oxycetylene kind of, kind of fell off um, mainly just because of the, the ability of getting flux and, and gas as gas was still really expensive to produce back then. So, um, you really saw Oxyfuel had a really good heyday and then just kind of fell off. Um, but what's, I guess what followed that up is while oxycetylene was, was being, I guess, commercialized, 
everyone in the background was developing more commercial applications for arc welding. As electricity got more commonplace, um, the, the power got cleaner. I know uh, a lot of people don't know, but uh, at least machine shop guys know about clean power, uh, stable frequency. Oh, it's, really a, oh it's an issue. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you really need that for welding. So as the power grid was getting cleaner and cleaner, you really started seeing um, arc welding really start to take hold. And actually, World War One was what really drove arc welding to become a standard commercialized process used in industry. Uh, it was it was it was needed so much for all of the they were they were building planes they were building vehicles they were doing all kinds of stuff with arc welding in World War One so you're talking teens, early teens, um, and then in, after World War One you're talking the twenties, and the twenties was pretty cool because that's really where you started seeing. Uh, you know, earlier we talked about autogenous welding, which no, no filler materials added, and then then the other one was filler material. Well, in the 20s, people had gotten smart enough to realize, hey, if I want to weld a lot and don't want to hold a rod, how do I continuously feed wire? Well, 1920, uh, continuously fed wire was developed. Oh, fascinating. Uh, the other thing that was really, uh, really pushed and developed out of a lot of the old oxyacetylene stuff was they figured out that you had to have some sort of shielding effect. You had to protect the molten puddle from oxygen. Um, back in the oxyacetylene, you had flux on the outside of the rod. Well, as arc welding kind of uh, is growing and is evolving and changing, they started realizing, oh, well, I can do this a whole lot better with shielding gas, and I can do it with other materials. So shielding gas really started taking off um, mainly because they were seeing that as they tried to weld stainlesses and other materials that they started to get it cracking. And they realized that oxygen and nitrogen was causing the weld to become brittle or it'd crack or you'd have porosity, uh, which is little holes and, and puddles and bubbles in your weld. Um, and that's where the use of hydrogen, argon, and helium became more readily used as by creating essentially an artificial atmosphere over the well puddle. And that has continued on today. Argon is the number one um, shielding gas for welding. Uh, I've used helium for when you want hotter beads. Uh, I've used hydrogen mixtures, CO2 mixtures, all that kind of stuff like that. But to this day, argon, because it's an inert gas, which means that it is non it's a non-reactive gas, it's also heavier than air. A lot of people don't know that. Argon yeah, like, is heavy. Yeah, it's yeah, a it displaces fall. the oxygen in the room. It too. does. It do, yeah, bad. <laughs> yeah. Do not ever weld in a completely sealed room with no exit or no ventilation. Oh, it's not a good time. Yeah, argon will will fill. If you're doing a lot of welding and say like a eight foot by ten foot room, and you have a door closed, you do a bunch of welding in that room you can displace the oxygen in that room if you're in there welding all day and you can suffocate in a room because argon will fall to the ground and it will push the oxygen up and it will fill the room from the bottom up. Now I've, I've seen it happen where guys like pass out, you know, welding in uh, confined spaces like welding in uh, 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 like pressure vessels and stuff like that. Like have you, you seen have it in a booth before? I've never seen it in a booth before. No. Okay. No. No. Thank goodness. No. Because right. those are, 
again, boo, and especially most of the booths are pretty well ventilated, uh, where they have fume extraction and stuff like that. So that keeps some sort of fresh air, but I've definitely seen it in, um, uh, pressure vessels, like small tanks, oh, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. eight foot tall, six, eight foot wide tanks. You weld in there, you know, four or five hours at a time, and guys start getting lightheaded because the argon is displacing the oxygen. Oh, uh, this is that culture of safety we're talking about. Oh, yeah, be mindful yeah. of that. So, stuff. but again, when they started using these gases to begin with, they didn't really realize that 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 kind of stuff was happening. So, um, the, the the science behind welding atmospheres and creating a, a an inert gas uh, cloud around your puddle and how much better your weld bee could be. And you, you, you allowed proper uh, recrystallization and realignment of the grain structure. So when it goes back, goes from uh, liquid back to solid, you want to, you want the grains of the material to realign correctly. And if you have oxygen or nitrogen, you create these kind of weird crystalline structures that are very, um, very prone to cracking and just there's, not a, not a good thing. Uh, what that also allowed people to do was to weld a little more reactive materials. Now, reactive, I mean, uh, they are more, um, when they go to a liquid state and back and forth between, they, they violently react with oxygen and nitrogen. Uh, and this, so this is where you really started seeing, once they figured out the, the shielding gas thing, it, that whole concept, you're like, oh, well, we've never been able to weld aluminum because it's extremely reactive to oxygen. Well, what what if we start welding with, with argon? Oh, well, that fixed it. All of a sudden, they could start welding aluminum, magnesium. You, in the, I'll jump ahead a little bit, but in the, the 50s, you started seeing weldings of, of titanium, nickel-based alloys, your inconels, cobalt, stuff like that. All these materials that were never before, it would just instantly crack um, due to either nitrogen or oxygen and would cause embrittlement. Now, all of a sudden this, the applications for welding exponentially grew just by them figuring out that, Hey, we, we needed a protect protective environment. So, you know, you started seeing as machines got more advanced, you started seeing automated welding machines. You started seeing uh, flux being put on to wire uh, really in the 30s, um, leading into World War II, the, let's see. Ah, okay, sorry, lost my place. It's a lot of notes. The, <laughs> yeah, I have pages and pages. Um, 1930 was the first all-welded merchant vessel. Really? To, that to give long, you some perspective, it how, that's that how long? long they've been welding together ships. I think before that, they were using rivets, they were using some uh, brazing and oxyacetylene to braze joints oh, wow. and stuff like that. But most of the time, they were riveted together and trying to seal that way. So in 1930, the MS Carolinian was the first all-welded, in terms of fabrication, all-welded merchant vessel, which I thought was super, super cool. Um, and again, this is just before World War II, so you really started seeing the production of ships and heavy equipment exponentially increase because of welding. So now okay. you weren't drilling holes and everything, you weren't riveting, you weren't doing nuts and bolts, all the stuff. You're like, oh, I can just weld these two sheets together, and it's as good as one sheet. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. hey, actually, look, World War II is a good uh, breaking point, actually. 
that's a good stopping point for us to switch over. Point? Yeah, to switch over for okay. part two or yeah. maybe even part three. I don't know. We'll see. I'll, I'll, I'll give some hints. Yeah. After about 1930, stuff starts getting real fun. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. After uh, after you know 9 a.m. and 2020 in, in certain parts of Metro Atlanta, I think some of the stuff and some yeah. of the shops are getting kind of fun. Okay. So, yeah. all right. So there's the first part of your history of welding by Professor Kyle. This is uh, something he's excited about, and we're going to keep As on. You can see. We're, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to keep diving into it and get into the good stuff. Uh, next week's episode will include more about after World War II. Uh, so finishing it out this week's uh, is the tool's, tool's fault, you know, because it's not my fault. It's the uh. tool's fault. Uh, I actually <laughs> had one this time. And, man, it's a, leader, right. it's a leadership one, and it's bad. Okay. okay? Let's hear so, it. So, you know, it's a, it's we, we instill a few different principles with my students, and three of them are um, extreme ownership. And leaders eat last, and then finally the infinite game. And this week I had talked about how do I, introducing them to the infinite game and understanding that that principle of. Uh, and if you guys don't know who I'm talking about, uh, extreme ownership is by a uh, and a former Navy SEAL named Jocko Willink. And uh, the infinite game is a a business leadership principle by a gentleman named Simon Sinek. Uh, I follow. I've read both of their books before. Um, I think their their principles are on point. And one of the things that you're supposed to do in extreme ownership is make sure that everybody understands, you know, the the mission and everybody understands the process. You don't have to tell them how to do their jobs. You just have to tell them what their jobs are. Um, and as a part of digital learning and as a part of the whole process, I'm trying to figure out how to take a hands-on classroom and convert it into a, a no hands type classroom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, we did a we did a first project, and our first project involved uh, students creating a Rube Goldberg device, a Rube Goldberg machine in their homes. Oh, that's cool! Yeah, and so we're still in the process of patching the videos together. I'm going to have it look like a Zoom call, where the root the ball that starts in one machine moves to the next screen, into the next screen, into the next screen, and progresses through the entire system as though it's one big Rube Goldberg machine. Um, that's cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So I tried to get them to understand. Uh, you know, project milestones, uh, expectations, specifications, uh, limitations, all the big Asians of their projects that they'll be used to in the future. And uh, one of the things I was asking them to do was a project notebook, just like we have an engineering design notebook that you keep. And usually for those of us in the industry, that thing is pages and pages long of everything we've got. And it was, you know, I wasn't clear about the expectations and I, and I noticed it when I got it back for the very first time and I could see that some of the students had put a few things in their revision table that were just kind of, they didn't understand. And it was even me being in a position that I'm in and thinking that I've got the greatest ideas. I dropped the ball on my own, you know, principle of making sure that they understand the process and that they understand what's expected and what they should do. So being, you know, what I hope to be a benevolent and reasonable individual i turned off the grading on that on that uh assignment i returned it back to them i went over expectations i gave them examples made sure there was clear understanding and then gave them the opportunity to you know resubmit it knowing what was expected so this translates to everybody in business and everywhere else listen uh you can know in your head what's expected and you can know the job in your mind but if you cannot translate that to the people working for you and make sure that they are on the same mission as you are, 
uh, you're not going to get what you expected. Everybody's going to be frustrated because they think they did it right and you think they did it wrong and they won't know why and you won't understand why they don't understand. So just remember, doesn't mean you have to micromanage and tell them how to do their job. Just make sure you know you told them what their job is. So that was me. Screwed up this week, but got it corrected. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't me. It was the it was the computer's fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's not that bad a one. But no. yes, at the end of the day, it was still the computer's fault. It was course. still the computer's fault. I didn't do that. It was Outlook. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> so, all right. So, with that, listen, guys. Uh, I appreciate you all coming and listening in. Uh, look forward to you being a part of the the continuing series on the history of welding and. We will uh, see you all next week. So until then, hey, look, it worked in the model. Worked in CAD. (laughs) Bye, guys. (laughs) Take it easy.